Good morning. You can obviously tell I'm not at the church this morning. I've pre-recorded this so that it can go out with the live feed because COVID has come to the compound. Uh, we do have a few cases here. Uh, so far, the symptoms are fairly mild. Um, so we'd appreciate your prayers for us, but it definitely changes our schedule in that we're going to need to self-isolate for the next two weeks. Um, lots of people have offered uh, to deliver groceries and things like that, so we're fine in that way, but we would just uh, appreciate your ongoing prayers as we navigate this uh, little bump in the road. Um, we are going to continue in our series in the season of mission, looking at the early churches. We've been focusing on 1 Corinthians, we'll move into 2 Corinthians soon, and looking at um, really the, the, the issue of our identity in Christ as it impacts things like sexuality, as it impacts things like rituals and customs. Uh, Jake talked about eating food offered to idols last week um, and, and really brought out some very relevant points. This week, we're talking about when the church comes together, uh, decisions that are made, and how does the fact that we are following Jesus uh, impact that? Now, chapter 11, chapters 11 to 14 of 1 Corinthians are full of hot topics uh, and I'm going to be very, very upfront. I'm not going to answer all your questions uh, about um, these passages. I'm going to I'm going to take kind of a fly overview and look at uh, generally what what they're saying about how when we get together, how do we live together uh, as the body? Remember, may remember last week Jake talked about these two polar sides, right and wrong, and maybe sometimes we try to find a compromise. But what we're actually doing is looking at a higher level. So I'm not going to answer your questions. I actually came across a quote years ago that I thought of again um, this week as I was preparing, and this is it. I fully realize that I've not succeeded in answering all your questions. Indeed, I feel that I've not answered any of them completely. The answers I have found only work to raise a whole new set of questions, which only lead to more questions, some of which we weren't even aware were problems in the first place. To sum up, in some ways, I feel that we are, we are as confused as ever, but I do believe we are confused on a higher level and about more important things. Now, maybe that doesn't encourage you today, but it's the truth of where I'm coming from. So we're going to fly over. We're going to look at some of these topics, but I'm not going to answer all your questions because I'm trying to, to go a little deeper. And what we see in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 are several issues around a central theme. This is typical for what we've seen for Corinthians. We've looked at these large chunks of text that, are, that bring these diverse ideas into one theme that they're focusing on, and today is no exception. They all rotate around what happens when the church at Corinth is together. So I want to look at the advice that Paul's giving to Corinth, especially how they're to live and function in their gatherings for worship. If, if you think about it like this, imagine that what we are doing is looking at the theme through a set of binoculars, right? We're looking at, at how they gather as the church. And as we look through these binoculars, there, there's a picture there, um, the way we turn the focus knob, which is the text we're looking at today, will either distort the focus or it will clarify the focus. And so what we're trying to do is look at all these texts and read them and look at them in such a way so that we can clearly see the focus point, what Paul is saying to them about how they are to act when they come together. That's the title of the church. So the first section 
is, in my opinion, the hardest one to navigate. And it's where they talk about the controversy around coverings. I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 2 to 5. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Okay, now obviously that's uh, enough to get a lot of people get their motor running, right? Um, but let's make a few comments. I, I just want to make some basic comments as we look at this. It's not going to resolve everything, but it's going to give you food for thought and you can wrestle with it uh, on your own. First of all, we have to acknowledge that there are very church groups today that actually practice head coverings in worship. Now, despite this, there seems to be a tremendous amount of energy invested in this passage, uh, even though nobody's actually practicing it. When you look at the, the larger scale, there are a few. I think it's because the text also deals with issues around gender and around authority. Uh, and those issues get everybody fired up on all sides of the coin. But, but I want you to realize this is something that the practice doesn't actually happen very often in today's church. Second, uh, this text either needs to be taken literally, which means we need to practice this, or it needs to be taken symbolically. Now, you'll notice there, I didn't say culturally, because I, I don't like the idea that certain cultural things just disappear. Um, because what we're looking at when we read the scripture is these deeper issues of the authority of God and, and underlying um, philosophical truths about the way we're to live our lives. So I like to say we either take it literally or we take it symbolically. And um, since most people don't practice this literally, I lean toward a need to, to, to get a symbolic understanding of why head coverings is involved there. And, and third, there, there are some things that can help us understand um, the symbolism. There's, there's some details that you need to have in your mind as you're thinking it through. First, the, the word for man and the word for woman is also uh, used in Greek for husband and wife. And it's more likely, scholars say, that this is not talking about men and women in general, but in, in involved, men and women involved in a marital relationship. Uh, so it's not related just to gender. Uh, second, uh, it, in many of the pagan cults in Corinth, when the priests, the men, would get up to, to lead a, a, a cultic act or pray or speak, they would cover their heads. And given the propensity in Corinth for people to want to be elevated above others, um, it's highly probable that some men in the church were covering their heads to reflect this practice, to try to give themselves status or show themselves as elite. So um, they would pray or they would prophesy with their head covered. And so that would be what Paul's saying, that we don't need to do that, right? Third, in, in the city, because we talked about the high level of, of sexuality and prostitution, especially with the Temple of Artemis, um, women, especially married women, would cover their heads as a sign of modesty. Uh, to show that they weren't a prostitute, that they were not involved in that, to show that they were married. So th this could be related to that Paul's saying, women, just like you wear a head covering outside, wear a head covering inside. Uh, 
Fourth, there are some things that are clear about the passage, and there are some things that aren't clear about the passage. And that's one of the things I think we have to keep in mind. We, we don't really know exactly what this is talking about. In verses 8 and 9, it talks about how you know, there's an order to creation. We know that. But in verses 10, it says women should keep their heads covered because of the angels. What does that mean? Um, nobody knows. Nobody. People have ideas, but nobody knows. And I'm not sure that we will ever know the full meaning of the text. So the point is there needs to be a guiding principle for them when they come together. And that's found actually in verses 11 and 12 to me. Paul says, he's talking about how in the order of creation, right? Man came first and then woman was taken from man. But in verse 11, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, in the Lord, Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of, of woman. But everything comes from God. And I think he's saying, we have these things we need to do, but you've got to realize that it's not about elevating one over the other. It's not about um, differentiating so much because everyone comes from God. Uh, the source of God is everything there. Now, I know this leaves you hanging. It doesn't tell you whether you should wear a head covering or not. It doesn't answer all your questions. But the reality is, Paul's trying to say, even in this, it all comes from God. Now, in the next section, I'm going to read 11, 17 to 22, and then I'll skip down and read 27 to 34. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then we'll skip to verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. See, the issues of when they come together here is that they are forgetting whose table this is. There were issues around what, how they practice what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, what we do and what they did then is very, very different. Uh, they didn't go to church in a building. They would meet in a home, typically a larger home, which meant a more wealthy person uh, in Corinth. 
uh, usually um, it was it was a Roman villa. They would have a large space, and the wealthy and the poor and the slaves would come together, which is quite remarkable in this Roman villa. Now I have a picture, kind of the floor plan of the typical. Roman villa in Corinth. And you'll see two red circles. One was around the atrium, which is indoor, covered, uh, and one was around the peristylium, which is outdoor. Now, these are the larger areas where typically uh, house churches would meet in these larger areas. Now, communion, when they came together for communion, it was actually a meal, the love feast, and they would use bread and wine within the meal um, to, to symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus. And what was happening in Corinth uh, evidently is that those who were more at their leisure, in other words, the wealthy, who didn't have to work as poor, as poor people or slaves did all day, uh, would meet earlier in the afternoon, and they would have a meal, usually in the dining room, which you see circled in blue, the triclinium. Um, but the time, by the time the working people and the slaves had arrived, often the food would be gone, and the people would be congregated in this smaller area, keeping the poor and the slaves uh, separated. And Paul was reminding them, you know, guys, this is not a meal to eat to feed the hungry, or to feed you if you're hungry, especially if you're wealthy. You can do that in your own homes. But the poor and the slaves cannot. They actually need this meal. See, this is Jesus' table, he's saying here. And that's why in verse 29, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you come together and you're hoarding this food and the poor and the slaves who will come later have nothing, you're, you're, you're missing the whole body of Christ. So he says in verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Once again, there's this idea of the deeper meaning. Yes, he's giving instructions about the table, but he's doing it to tell them there's something deeper going on in their ritual, just like there's something deeper they need to grasp about these head coverings. And then he moves on to the third theme in chapters 12 and chapter 14, spiritual gifts within the body. Uh, there, there's, there's an interlude in between those two chapters, which is a very famous one that I'll discuss in a minute. But I'm going to read a section of chapter 12 and make a few comments about it. So we can see what's happening there. And then we'll also comment on chapter 14 with just a few snippets. But if you look at chapter 12, verse 7, I'll start there. And I'm going to read down to verse 31. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit and to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the, in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are the all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. There's some things to note here, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly because there's a lot to cover still. But, but first, in verse 7, we see these gifts are from the Spirit, and they're meant for the good of everyone, right? It says in verse 7, look back there. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he goes on to describe the gifts in verses 8 to 11. They're all diverse, but once again, they're all from the Spirit. He makes that very clear, and they're for the good of everyone. And then there's this large section between verses 12 and 25, where he says, you are one body, but you have many parts, and all are important, and all are necessary in very different ways. He says in verse 18, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And, and you don't have a choice to opt out. It says just if, if the ear says, because I'm an ear and not something else, I'm not a part of the body. It, it, it doesn't mean it's not a part of the body. It still is. We are all arranged, one of us, or many parts, all into one body, and all are important and necessary in different ways. And fourth, in 26 and 27, we see our connectedness, right? It means that when one part suffers, Every part suffers with it. When one part rejoices, every part rejoices with it. What we do, because we are connected, what we experience has, has implications for every single part of the body. Now in chapter 14, he walks out the implications of, of two specific gifts, prophecy, which would be a message coming directly from God, uh, and tongues, a message that comes from God in another language that needs interpretation. And I think he focuses in on those two here uh, because these are very visible gifts. And as we've seen in Corinth where people want to be elevated, they want to have status, um, they, they want to use these gifts in a way that, that, that uh, puts them in the spotlight. And Paul says, you know, you've got to use these gifts in ways that build up instead of puff up. That's from the text that Jake looked at last week, right? Chapter 8, verse 1. We know that we all possess knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And Paul talks about these two gifts and how to navigate that and what, how it should all play out in their, in their gathering. 
And, and he, he says, you need to do this to build each other up in a very orderly fashion. He ends the passage in verses 39 and 40 of chapter 14, saying, therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, that's really the purpose of chapter 14 is to say, look, guys, there, there is, you're talking about this and this. I'm talking about this. It has to be done in a way that is fitting, that is orderly, and that builds up the body. And you're going to say, Jeff, really, is that all you're going to say about chapter 14? Yes. And I'm actually taking my cue from this from Paul, who, who says all of this in chapter 12 and chapter 14 around a central point, something his words and his placement would call the central and, and he says, most excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13 is a very well-known passage. Uh, it's read at weddings. It's cross-stitched on pillows. Uh, it's all over Pinterest. And that's a good thing because the message, I think, is very important. It's one that we need to hear over and over again. But the original context of that message needs to be um, considered as well. You have to read this while seeing the passage in the proper context. It's not primarily about romantic or married love at all, right? We hear this at every wedding or most weddings, but it's not primarily about married love. It covers that, obviously, but Paul's writing about love between believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, the people that used to sit in, in, the, in the sanctuary with you, right, next, next door, and hopefully soon we'll be sitting by you again. It, it's writing about love between you and the rest of the local church. In all these issues, head coverings, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, Paul says the most excellent way, this, you're, you're looking at all these issues here, the thing that's up here is the way of love, love for one another. And the passage is, very familiar. I'm not going to take long on it before we move into some application, but there's a few things I do want to say about it. First, Paul is using idea after idea in the first three verses to make clear that what is important is not what comes, but where it comes from. Not what comes, not what actually happens, but where it comes from, the motive. Let's, let's just read uh, verses one to three. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, he's doing these beautiful things. It's what, what's coming as he's speaking in the tongues of men and angels. But if it doesn't come from love, it's a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, all these things but it doesn't come from, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I am nothing. See, the, the act is nullified if it doesn't come from love. So it's, it's bigger than a head covering. You can cover your heads or not cover your heads, but you can totally miss the point. It's more powerful even than the symbol of the body and blood of Christ because if you're not using those symbols from a point of love, he's saying, you're missing the boat. And it's more important than any spiritual gift. You can use your gift in the church, but if you're not doing it, if it's not coming from a place of love for one another, 
I am nothing, he says. You can do all kinds of church things and do them even well, and you're wasting your time. And that's, that's a hard line, right? It's a hard line to draw to say, you know, it doesn't matter what you do so much as where you do it from. And, and to make it even tougher, he goes on to clarify in verses four to seven, what love, what does it actually look like? What, lo what love looks like? Love is patient. Just, just think about these as I read them. Think about your relationships with other people, not just your spouse or the one that you love, but think about your relationships with people in the church. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That's a tough one, right? How many times have we been angry at somebody and something bad happens and we kind of secretly delight in that? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It, it's a high bar that Paul is drawing here. And it also makes clear, you know, if love was the guiding principle in the church at Corinth, these other issues would be settled quite easily. They wouldn't have arguing. They wouldn't have people going hungry. They wouldn't have people trying to elevate themselves over others by use of head coverings or not, or by use of their gifts, trying to be visible. If, if love was the guiding principle underneath it all, it would solve those problems. And then Paul finishes his focus by reminding the Corinthians that love is central because it lasts. Love is central because it lasts. Listen to verses 8 to 13. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. All those things will be gone, but love continues. It lasts. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is central, Paul says, because it lasts. It's, it's the core attribute of God. In 1 John 4, 8, we read that, right? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. Like it's, it's the central aspect of his nature. And that's why Paul leads up to the coming of Jesus. And, and when we see face to face, Right? As we love, we actually live out this character of God, which is the full measure of what the body of Christ is supposed to be. We're supposed to be living out the body of Christ. And since God is love, love has to be the defining characteristic of us. See, this whole passage is trying to describe what it looks like for us to live as the church. It's a description of the DNA of Christ's body. 
all of these passages, complicated passages, deal with how the body functions together. It describes what might be called the spiritual DNA of the body of Christ. What are the characteristics inherent to us as we live as the body of Christ today? And there's a lot in here, often hidden by the fact that we get super focused on these issues down here and don't see what's happening up there. We miss the forest for the trees. But what's the passage saying about how we live as the body of Christ? I'll give you four points of application as we literally seek to flesh this text out. When it comes to believers, we have to realize that the many are connected as one. He says in chapter 12, verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Now, this is hard for us to understand in such an individualized culture. We are one, not just in name, but in actual connection. There's something in essence that links us together. Verse 26 of chapter 12, when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. When one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. See, what we do in our individual selves impacts all of us. What we experience in our individual selves impacts the whole body, both positively and negatively. What we do impacts everyone. I, I do a, a, a group development activity um, with, with our basketball team every year. I've got a picture that I'm going to put up of a, a smaller version. That's not us. But we, we do this activity where there's a ring with a tennis ball on it. And uh, I'm just going to say hi to Reed. Reed just came into the house. So hi, Reed. <laughs> we have a tennis ball sitting on a ring, and there's a web of rope. Now, the, rope, the, the things you see in this picture, the rope is quite short, but we have about 10 feet of rope. So the team is spread out all over the gym with this tennis ball in the middle. And the goal is to move the ball from one space to place it on a cone in another space. And usually I make them go through the the hallways of the school and across the stage and it's upstairs and downstairs and it's quite tricky and what happens is they realize as they continue that every movement they make affects the whole group they have to they have to be aware of each other well the same is true in the body of Christ that what we do impacts each other but it's more than that too Paul in Romans 12 writes for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We actually belong to each other. We're knit together by the Spirit, and we cannot separate that. It changes how you view each other if you let this soak in. And, and, and a related idea is, is to that is that every one is vital. It's not like we get lost in this communal we. We're all diverse and different, and, and each one is needed. That's what that big section from in 12, 14 to 31 is all about. We need hands and eyes and noses, and we need parts that are, quote, unpresentable. Paul makes it very clear in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Let that sink in. You can't say to another part of the body, another part of the church, that you don't need them. He also says that you can't, just because you want to, cease to be a part of the body. The, the inverse is also true. You need them and they need you, even if you think you don't. 
And that's why things like reconciliation and forgiveness with each other, service to one another, seeing the other's viewpoint, that's why things like that are very vital. Because each part is here for a reason. And we need each part if we're going to move forward. That's because the goal is to build up. The goal is to build up. Remember last week's text, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a, there's a Greek word, okodomeo. It has a range of meanings. It means building or to build up or to strengthen or to construct. Um, and it's all throughout 1 Corinthians. In fact, we've seen it multiple times already. In chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. That's that word, okodomeo. And it's used repeatedly in our text today. Let me just give you some examples of it. It means to build up. 14.3, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, their okodomeo, encouragement and comfort. First 14, chapter 14, verse 5, he who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be okodomeo, edified. 14.12, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up okodomeo, the church. It says in verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified, vocal the male. Verse 26 of chapter 14, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. All that we do is to be done to build up the body because we are one. We're connected and each part is vital. And that really should give us pause in the way we treat each other, in the way we speak to each other, in the way we speak about each other. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. How do we know if we're being built up? How do we know if we're building others up? How do we know if we're moving in the right direction? Well, maturity looks like love. And we, we often have this idea in our head that maturity looks like knowledge or position, the teachers, the elders, or approval from others. Oh, yeah, they're so spiritually mature. But the Bible is clear. Maturity looks like love. In 1 John 4, 12, it says, No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love looks like, or maturity looks like love. It's the way we reflect the character of Jesus into the world. I'm not talking just about warm feelings. I'm not talking about these old, lovely, precious moment type feelings. Dallas Willard says to love is to will the good for another person, to choose, even when it's difficult or sacrificial or painful for us, to will the good of the other person. That's what love is. And we know that we've come to a more mature place when our reactions are bent toward love for one another. All of these texts, head coverings, Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, they're all important. But Paul is saying, love each other as you have been loved by Christ. You are the body of Christ, he says. You are united by the Spirit of God. You are one. And only by loving the way you have been loved by God will you be able to mature into the image of Christ. 
The same is true for us today. For all our knowledge, it will cease. For all our eloquence, it will be like a clanging cymbal. For all our sacrifice and service without love for each other and for those around us, it amounts to nothing. But with love, done in love, it presents a true picture of God to the world, which leads to lives renewed, a community transformed, all by the power of the gospel. It all starts with love. And you can go away today, think about this text, and think about spiritual gifts, and think about head coverings, and think about communion. That's all in there. It's all important. But the point is, in all these things that they did, and in all the things that we do, are we actually living in love with one another? Are we willing the good of other people in all we do and say? That's how lives get renewed and a community gets transformed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this text. We ask that you would continue to guide us as we um, wrestle through the the theological and the doctrinal issues. There's a lot there that we haven't even touched on today. But God, let us begin first from a place of love for one another. Let us sacrifice our good for the good of the other. Let's, let us realize that we are connected, that what we do impacts everyone else. And give us the strength to love as we have been loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.